What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today, I've got a return guest I'm very excited about, Phil Cunliffe from Alpha Bunga Bunga, and we're going to talk about why heating his flat feels impossible. What's up, Phil? Good to have you back. Yeah, thanks. I'm delighted to be back. It's good to be back on Exhaust, and even though it's older than I would like over here in the UK, but it's good to be chatting with you again. Yeah. So you wrote a piece in Unheard lately, recently. Also, you wrote one that just came out yesterday. You're very productive. That was probably my favorite take on the AI thing. Thanks. Yeah. And both of those will be in the show notes, by the way, everybody. But uh, one that we're primarily going to talk about is about how you're shilling for Putin now by saying that uh, we need to end Russian sanctions or you need to end Russian sanctions in the UK because the bills are too damn high. Yeah. Talk us through that. I mean... Well, to be fair, I've been shilling for Putin for a long time because you know, I kind of uh, came out in favor of Brexit back in 2016, which was also part of Putin's plot. That's I right. Generally, you know, Don't call it a skeptical. comeback. You've been here for years. Yeah, at least I should take, I should be, you know, kind of fully awarded credit. I'm still waiting, incidentally, for if my handlers in Moscow are listening, I'm still waiting for the money to actually arrive in my account. So far, it's not. So, and it would certainly help with the, with the energy prices here at the moment. But yeah, the, so the case was, I made a, in the post, what's called of Unheard, which is the small or the smaller kind of pieces they publish. And it was published on Monday, the 5th of December, and it was making the case that it's time to end gas sanctions, which is to say that ideally I would like Britain to stop implementing the sanctions and to argue with its allies to also end the sanctions. And the one of the hooks, at least, was suggestion around the time that the piece was published. President Biden suggested that there was, you know, or muted the possibility that he would be open to negotiations with Russia and perhaps ending sanctions could be part of that because the weather has just turned very cold in Western Europe and in Britain in particular, at least cold for what we're used to and for this time of year, exceptionally so. And so finally, the, you know, it's uh, the pinch is being felt. Yeah, I was looking at your, or I was for my newsletter writing on (laughs) your electricity spot prices as soon as the weather turned cold because you know, that's often when your huge wind fleet stills and you're just reliant on gas for that because the UK, like America, has phased out a ton of coal in favor of natural gas. And I mean, I think I want to say like a couple of things. First of all, like the response to your piece was predictable, obviously, with the jokes we were making at the top of this. So there was that. But there's sort of like a more important question here that I think is in, in line with some of our conversations and the conversations I've heard you have on Alpha Bunga Bunga, which is like, what's so crazy about all of this to me, you know, because I was early on the energy crisis. You and I had a conversation like last fall about it. Is it like what happened to national interest? Like I, yeah, that like it just, Maybe I'll just ask you that question. Like, it doesn't seem beyond the pale to say people in the UK should be able to heat and light their homes and we shouldn't pursue policies that achieve the opposite of that. Yeah. What, how? When did that become such a radical thing to suggest? 
Yeah, and that is the kind of the strangest part of it. So, you know, the, I mean, they've been, given how much they've kind of degraded, like you say, how much Britain has kind of degraded its its infrastructure to produce energy and nuclear as well as coal. And even more recently than that, there was a huge gas storage facility that was closed down shortly yeah. before the invasion. Was that rough? I think it was 2015, like, yeah. and... So it's just like, you know, I mean, absurdly kind of timed. So, you know, they've been, given how much they've degraded the infrastructure, like you say, to participate in, given your energy dependent, unlike the state's energy rich, you know, with the shale boom and fracking and so on, given how dependent you are then, and having degraded so much of your infrastructure to then plunge headlong into sanctions on you know, a major global gas supplier and particularly so important a supplier to the European continent, it does beg the question of why Britain, but also other West European countries are unable to formulate an interest, you know, I mean, very basically, why are they Mm -hmm. unable to defend their own interests in this situation? And it's something which seems to me is not, you know, I mean, it's, it's not only, I mean, it's a very practical problem, but also genuinely, you know, genuinely strange. I mean, if we think about so much of politics is understood, you know, like the I think, you know, the ordinary, if you want to talk about the man on the street kind of thing, you know, the ordinary. Um, the default position is, you know, cynicism, right? We always assume that underlying kind of highfalutin ideals and grand delinquent claims and what have you, there's some cynical interest and that there's somebody there who's kind of at least going to ensure there's some backroom deal somewhere, someone's going to make money and we're going to ensure that interests ultimately of, you know, the powers that be and the elites are kind of served. Um, Mm -hmm. And that seems like, you know, that that would include like, a national interest to, like you say, kind of keep the lights on and keep the heating working. And so the fact that there is nobody, it seems, in the state administration or the political elite that was capable of making the case how how damaging the sanctions would be to a continent that has consistently degraded its energy infrastructure, not just in Britain, but around, you know, around Europe. I mean, so the French nuclear you know, the French nuclear power stations, repairs in them apparently are taking much longer than they should be because they're pretty run down as well. And the Germans famously, you know, like they've been dependent for a while and now they're in the humiliating situation of not only having closed down their nuclear stations, but also importing dirty coal from South Africa, I think. Mm-hmm. So like in these circumstances, yeah, like you say, it's an extraordinary, and I think it's not really, for whatever reason, and I, I mean, I have a few ideas as to why it might be, but for whatever reason, it's not really filtered through into public debate or into public consciousness that we have been unable to defend our own interests. And again, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, kind of geopolitical interests in remote, you know, obscure conflicts, but just a basic interest to ensure that citizens have, you know, a reasonably priced supply to heat their homes and keep the lights on over the winter. And we might make it through without blackouts, but like you say, seeing all the graphs of the spot prices, which are being shared on social media, it looks like it's going to be a very rough ride and we'll be lucky if we don't have blackouts over the winter. I think you will be very lucky from what all I've seen coming out from National Grid and the way I've been sort of keeping up with what's going on in the UK and elsewhere. I mean, because 
uh, New England. The, the colonies share the UK's fate in a way because they don't have pipeline infrastructure to the Marcellus Shale formation. So, and their grid is heavily reliant on natural gas. So they have to buy in the same international spot market as Europe. Yeah. And, and uh, they've been freaking out for a while. <laughs> about what this winter is going to be. You know, do we break market rules and keep oil, you know, on deck? Like, how do we legally do that? You know, all of these complex issues. And, you know, in America, I've noticed a similar, like we're, like you said, we have Texas, you know, like we're, (laughs) we have the Permian Basin. We're very lucky. It's sort of insane that we have these huge waterways and all of these natural resources. It's very lucky, but there's still like a remarkable amount of wishful thinking or flat out ignorance about the necessity of energy. You know, like we have one political party that is constantly saying we're going to end fossil fuels. And I'm like, look, like it doesn't take anybody could tell you that if you're going to say, I'm going to end an industry, nobody's going to invest in it. Like that's not, like that's, it's very basic stuff. Like if somebody who ran for president ran on that and they become president, people are going to be very wary. So I can sort of see how that works in America and what's going on there. You said you had some instincts as to why people don't understand keeping the lights on is a valence issue like prime yeah. or inflation what what gives yeah so i mean this is i think you know trickier so i think i mean it's partly the same kinds of dynamics are at work like you say so the kind of pursuit of a green agenda has you know unsurprisingly been felt right and in terms of the degradation of infrastructure the discouragement of investment the hostility to fossil fuels and Exactly a similar effect. You know, Britain has been very proud of its renewables kind of claims, particularly with respect to wind. And there's all these like impressive looking wind farms off the coast in the North Sea. And you can see some actually not far from where I live in Canterbury in Kent. There's a fairly large set of those, you know, wind units off the coast. And I have to say, like, you know, they look, I mean, you know, aesthetically, they look pretty nice, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're quite elegant and, you know, they're an impressive looking from a kind of technological point of view. But, you know, notoriously intermittent. And uh, this year, as far as I understand, they've also been, you know, there's less than usual. And so they're filtering into our problems. Part of the issue, I think, is that... It's a geopolitical, so it, but it's not just kind of an ideological question of the damage that green thinking has done to material, you know, the material kind of infrastructure of, of industrial society in Europe. It's also a geopolitical issue in the sense that there is they Europe has been kind of a rel, you know relatively benign geopolitical environment now since the end of the Cold War. And has also enjoyed, you know, in that time has also relied on America to provide global security. So in that context, there has been less thought to, I think, basic questions of how you secure national interest, because the thinking has been to rely on America to provide interest in Europe as a whole and interest for the world at large. And so part of the way they've got around this is with a so-called interconnector system, whereby there are these cables which are supposed to provide power. And I mean, I talk about this in the Unheard piece, you know, to shunt power around between areas of surplus and deficit on the European continent. 
And I mean, abstractly, it makes sense, right? And it would seem to kind of, you know, it would seem to work. But it also presumes an overall environment of geopolitical kind of security and a condition in which there you don't have all countries scrambling for energy all at once, in which case, obviously, it's going to be much more difficult for the interconnector system, the premises in which it's supposed to function, don't hold anymore. So I think the part of the reason the inability to articulate an interest is not only the like I say, the green thing, but also the geopolitical thing. It's also the the British, in particular, the British case, you know, in the same way that we've become, you know, we no longer think about, or we kind of, how should I say, you know, we we no longer actually think about the what is necessary to maintain an industrial modern state and society. And mm. part of that mm. is because we've outsourced industries to East Asia, but also we became dependent on on gas from Russia to make up the shortfall for the intermittency of, of renewables. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we could pride ourselves in our green credentials, how much our carbon footprint was going down. Britain always looked very good when they went to the climate conferences in terms of how much it was reducing its carbon footprint. But all of that was dependent on, you know, relatively, relatively cheap gas conditions of geopolitical or benign geopolitical conditions. And when you take away those things, then suddenly it all looks, you know, it all looks very different. And part of the reason, you know, and the final element to this, to the picture is that, you know, the reason that we don't, or the reason we're unable to articulate a self-interest in this situation is because it would mean being like we started out talking, it would, the way in which the issue has been framed is it would mean being anti-Ukrainian, and supporting mm -hmm. effectively Putin's aggression against Ukraine. And that has been, you know, the the modus operandi for political elites now since the end of the Cold War. You know, so kind of everybody else's interest or defending human rights abroad. We don't have a national interest. We're defending kind of spreading these benign values. We're, you know, bringing democracy to other people. We're solving global poverty. We're solving global climate. And in all of those things, the idea of a specific national interest has become, you know, dissolved away into the globalist ether, essentially. So in that context, you know, like it was it's become almost impossible to legitimately assert self-interest in political debate. And again, I mean, this was kind of felt in COVID, right? You know, like any kind of any attempt to defend one's own interest in freedom of movement or civil liberty or, you know, refusal to or suspicion of the vaccine, for instance, could be cast as antisocial hostility. You know, you want to kill old people, whatever it is. And in a similar way with Ukraine. So if you make the case like we, you know, like we should keep our lights on and we should keep heating available because we're not at war with Russia. Right. Mm. That is immediately framed as being appeasement for a genocidal expansionist dictator. Right. I mean, so I really like that you brought up the, the like interconnections in Europe. I think this gets underappreciated about what's going on because I think one of my favorite energy writers, Irina Slav, put it this way: "There are no friends in a crisis." You know, and that's true. You know, <laughs> I think like oftentimes people outside of America can think that like seem to see America as like a traditional like nation state, but it's 
clear even in the founding documents of the country that the American states have always fucking hated each other. And there have always been regional tensions. And then on top of that, there have also been different regional interests. And it's an interconnected grid here that is pieced up with different operators. And so you can sort of see there are even spats between Arizona and California about when California buys Arizona power and when California tries to double deal on Arizona about it, you know, and whether or not the federal government should get involved in that. And so if it's a difficulty between like, federalized states that ostensibly share a constitution, it can only be that much more true for a bunch of actual nation states that are sort of yoked together with a currency. And I don't think anybody fully, it's, it's, well, you have to, I guess, have to be a certain bent of mind to entertain the idea that things would get that far. And it's very unpleasant when you do. And then I really enjoyed the point about how like, you know, you're always defending someone else, but to defend ever defend your own immediately puts you in this sort of like cruel fascist camp, which is very, very interesting to me because, you know, we're now in the realm of capital capitalism one, right? Like that's that, that's what there is now. And one of its core tenets is the pursuit of interest. And whether it comes to individual or national interest, it seems to be like it's harder and harder to articulate those things in a system that was supposed to allow for it. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I never quite kind of connected it in that way. Like you say, I mean, the, you know, it was supposed to be that, you know, the idea that greed is good one. That the you know individual self-interest and initiative won out over the idea of collectively state-imposed solutions, and so you would think like in those societies that making the case for self-interest would be easier than it is, and you know it clearly isn't. So you know whatever, however capitalism functions ideologically today, it doesn't seem to function on the basis of on the basis of self-interest. Quite the opposite, you know, it seems to rely on this enormous kind of surplus of self-effacing, altruistic, I don't even want to say collective, because I think, you know, I mean, you know, if we had collective, then you would be able to articulate a collective interest, such as the national interest, you know, so, but just the debate, kind of the abasement of any sense of, of being able to account for one's own interests, whether at an individual or an aggregate or a collective level, or me immediately makes you kind of illegitimate in some way. Mm. I mean, you can kind of see it again. So, you know, at the moment, there's like a spate of strikes in Britain. And uh, it's interesting to see how, you know, the consistently some of the strikes, again, even though you would think that they would have, um, you know, plenty of plenty of grounds on which to justify their industrial action on the basis of self-interest, you know, inflation erode, eroding wages, energy prices being so high, the general kind of institutional dysfunction and gridlock in society at large. But instead, say the nurses, you know, they're kind of justifying their industrial action on the basis of patient safety, mm -hmm. rather than saying like, you know, and I mean, I'm, you know, it's not to say I'm sure patient safety is an element and a legitimate element on which to take industrial action, but they seem, un, you know, even then they seem unwilling to just very boldly say, you know, look, we want more money. And that is not something <laughs> to be, you know, embarrassed about you know you don't pay us yeah. enough if you want us to work you need to pay us more money 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's striking to see like, yeah, anyway, I mean, it's a really good point that somehow capitalism has won, but without being able to justify or it operates on the basis of the absence of interest, seemingly. As for the interconnector system, yeah, I mean, I, you know, like you say, it's, it's you know, if, you, if American states struggle in the context of a federal system, you know, so much, so much the worse in Europe. And I, you know, it wouldn't surprise me, to be honest, if maybe even the state within the US, that states perhaps have more of a sense of their interest as states than even European countries do, because they're so used to operating in the context of the European Union, and in the context within which cooperation is taken for granted in conditions of relative, what have hitherto been relative security, mm-hmm. that there is simply, you know, no precedent and no mental framework for having the kind of the wherewithal and the acumen and the kind of foresight to be able to think as, you know, kind of needing to fend for your own interest for yourself. And so certain countries now have been kind of giving warnings that they're not going to be able to supply their neighbors under the interconnector system for whatever reason. Britain, Slovakia, Germany, Norway, they've all kind of raised concerns about their, you know, the fact they're not going to be able to fulfill their roles. But again, I mean, the very fact that it came to the situation to begin with is just extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to a friend the other day, and he and I had gone out to lunch as a fellow like energy. He works in the energy sphere as I do. And, you know, he was sort of, we were having a nice collegial debate, right? And one of the things that he said, he said, well, you know, the situation in Europe, he's, you know, appealing to my nationalism here, is actually good for the US because, you know, they have swapped one dependency for another, you know, from Russia to our LNG, basically. And I said, look, you're right. And it is true. We're about to inherit a whole bunch of German manufacturing. And I feel great about that because they fucked up their bag and I have zero sympathy for their leadership class <laughs> about that. But, you know, we need to think medium and long-term here. I was like, you know, energy stocks are undervalued, which is going to discourage the expansion of production in the Permian. They've gone through in Eagle Ford and Bakken. What are their like tier one best places to drill. So they're going to be conservative with their resources because they don't know how much they have left. You know, we already talked about the danger of saying we're going to end an industry and then demanding some people invest in it. And I said, you know, like, it's not like we're adding a bunch of nuclear to our grid. We're heavily gas dependent now. Gas has replaced coal and we're planning to phase out, I don't know, 30 gigawatts by the end of the decade. I was like, do we really think that we're going to rapidly expand production to where it's going to be comfortable for both Europe and America here? I mean, if the prices are high, it'll create persistent inflationary headwinds. And whenever things get inflationary, they get tense. And he was sort of like, ooh, that might be a little dicey. And so I guess my question for you is sort of like, are there any reasonable conversations in Europe about the medium or the long term? I was shocked when Sunak stepped in and said, Liz Truss's one good idea was to do gas production in the UK. And that was one of the first things that got the axe when he stepped in. And I was like, that was yeah. your medium term solution. I don't know what you guys are going to do now. Yeah. 
No, that's right. And I mean, and there was like a, it was a striking moment of just how, you know, the, the green kind of green ideology is, you know, transpartisan. It's certainly not the kind of the property of the Green Party or social democratic parties, but, you know, the, the Tory party too, right? They've got a strong green constituency of, you know, people who kind of live in nice, in nice parts of the country with reasonably big houses or even big houses. And they're all kind of very, you know, they're essentially anti-development. And so there's a strong kind of constituency within the Tory kind of voter base of people who are hostile to that and committed, you know, committed to the idea of, of a green kind of conservatism, essentially, you know. So, yeah, it's the striking down of fracking as a kind of interim solution. Yeah, it's it's amazing, you know, and like, and. You know, I mean, I guess you you can, you know, you could make the case, you know, that the that the kind of the America, I mean, America certainly is benefiting by, like you say, kind of effectively, you know, they boodled away the German export surplus, which has been a thorn in kind of America's side. You know, they've effectively won a trade war by virtue of the sanctions on Russia. So kicking away the cheap energy on which the German kind of industrial export machine was reliant they won a trade war and this was going back to the Obama administration. Obama, you know, the, his trade representatives were always complaining to Angela Merkel about the German trade surplus. And now, you know, they don't need, that's gone. And at the same time, though, you know, I mean, it doesn't seem to me to be in America's, like, you know, like you say, kind of, it's not as if America is resolving its own energy problems in the course of this crisis. And at the same time, it doesn't seem to me to make sense to kind of impoverish the wealthiest part of the world, you know, or one of the wealthiest parts <laughs> of the world outside of the States. Yeah. You know, if you want to be, you know, if you want to kind of have allies and trading partners and, you know, mark for your exports and what have you. So all of that seems to me to be also self-defeating at one level. I mean, I suppose the element, you know, the the element that I would, or the way in which these things work out is that there does seem to be a shift. I mean, I don't know, you know, I presume like you've seen it too. There does seem to be a kind of a consensus in favor, a growing consensus in favor of nuclear power. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's kind of very soft and very, you know, kind of very limp-wristed and wishy-washy. You know, so Macron has kind of reversed his position on nuclear power. He's committed to building out nuclear power. There's a vague consensus in the UK that nuclear power is something kind of broadly positive but i mean you know that kind of isn't going to build nuclear power stations and even if they were building nuclear power stations in the way that we would need you know like it's decades away before it would come online and so oh, that, yeah and integrating you know, them like i think what people sort of misunderstand is like it took us a long time to integrate coal into the economy it took a long time. So what is it? We get the first like coal pump in the in the UK to get water out of mines in what 1712? Something like that? Early 18th century. But we don't really live in like the coal era until like especially in America, the latter half of the 19th century. You know, and yeah. it's really, you know, a couple things like Rudolf Diesel's engine, the Model T. And Churchill's decision to switch the British Navy from coal to oil that creates the oil age in terms of demand. You know, these yeah. are big shifts that, you know, take a long time to sort of, even if it's just, 
you know, 1% interest every year, you know, and then it creates a cascade effect, like getting everything you can out of minerals rather than hydrocarbons is a, it's a long time thing. Like, yeah, we could do electricity. I mean, we do it all day, every day already, but getting the rest of it, getting district heat, getting all of these other things. I think we're, we're very overconfident in how quickly we can deliver things. I mean, I saw you tweeting the other day about this sort of like insane looking ad that looked like B-roll from the matrix in terms of like growing humans and vets, which is like, whatever is a political issue. I'm not here to debate that, but it's like obvious that we're so far from that, you know, and this startup is like 10, 20 years, we got this. And yeah. it's like, yeah. this is, yeah. no, it's like, what are you, ta- like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think our like time scales. I mean, you know, people live short lives comparatively, you know, in the long yeah. run. So that's part of it. But perhaps, and I'd like to know what you think about this, the atrophy of interest as a basis for politics might have some correspondence to our inability to think through things in adequate timescales because everything is always for something else. And that for something else tends to be a crisis. Yeah. I mean, I think that I'm sure, you know, I've got no doubt that's true, that it is the, it's partly that inability to, I think it's, I'm sure it's partly the, you know, the triumph of the triumph of spot prices, the triumph of a certain vision of the market. You know, this is all kind of contributed to that inability to think in the long term and in the long run. I suppose what I was getting at, though, with the nuclear thing as well, though, is it's, you know, people, there is kind of this this awareness of the limits of green power, I think. Yes, of renewable, yes, absolutely. Renewables as a source. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, that hasn't really, you know, it's not. So while people are able to see that, they don't see that it is equally destructive in the short term, to shoot yourself in the foot by participating mm-hmm. in sanctions on Russian gas, you know, so that we allowed ourselves essentially to be maneuvered into a position whereby the only way to oppose Putinite aggression in Ukraine was to damage our own interests. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that speaks to a basic kind of a basic political failure, but also a lack of any kind of political imagination or you know, kind of part of the citizenry, like I say, because we've not, you know, there hasn't really the framework of thinking in terms of interest and in thinking in terms of national interest has just been degraded and made illegitimate. And so in those circumstances, you know, there was no one who was able to convincingly say, like, you know, look, we shouldn't do this. So I guess what I'm trying to say is like the we shouldn't allow the consent, what is seems to me to be a growing consensus on nuclear power, which is very welcome, but it can't be allowed to exonerate or kind of cover over the failure of the fact that there was kind of uh, that serious kind of mistakes were made about short term decision making as well with respect to participating in sanctions on a major energy supply Mm -hmm. like Russia. And that that was going to be tremendously damaging. So, and those two things reinforce each other. So we're squeezed on the one hand between, you know, the kind of the green aggradation of energy systems, and on the other between this self-defeating sanctions that so far are doing more damage to, you know, to to Western Europe than they are to the Russian economy. 
Right. If you look at kind of projections for how many people die, you know, when there is severe winters and expensive heating, then it looks, you know, I mean, truly dreadful for the excess death toll this winter in Europe. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, maybe we can sort of pivot to to the eastern part of Europe a little bit. So I was in Budapest for a conference earlier this year, which was, first of all, my first time in Europe, which felt cool. I felt less provincial, which was nice. And though Brit did say that I confirmed every single stereotype about Americans that he had ever thought of. <laughs> but, you know, I was asked to be on a panel about energy and it was a very spirited and fun debate, except that the Brussels dudes terrified me. I was like, right. you're so self-assured about what you're doing. Yeah. It, like, I was like, damn, this is wild. Like, I thought our elite sucked. I was just like, I will take an American lead <laughs> any day over this person because at least yeah. they can be guilted. You know, there's this sort of like just a total refusal to reckon with the situation in Eastern Europe as it is in like raw terms that the Hungarians, to their credit, like did not have. They were like, yeah. we should be able to build a Russian nuclear power plant here. Like, we're not building solar because it's between that or farmland. Like, they were about hard decisions made for real reasons. And that seemed to be lost on that crowd. And, like, what when we look at what's happening in the Ukraine, like, it seems to be creating serious faction in Europe over what to do. I mean, am I right about that? I'm, you know, it's... The Atlantic Ocean is big, and I don't trust yeah. a lot of some of the news that we get. Is, is Am I seeing that right? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly so. I mean, so the Hungarian government has been kind of an outlier in terms of its open skepticism over Western policy and mm-hmm. its attempt to, you know, its attempt to keep kind of an open door to Russia throughout the crisis. And that's, so that's certainly true. And it's not accidental because the kind, you know, having a kind of a, a government like Orban's, which has explicitly cast itself against liberal internationalism, means that it's more legitimate for Hungary to, it can be, you know, it can legitimately and publicly defend its interest explicitly. And they mm-hmm. say quite explicitly, you know, without being, without disguising their claims that it's not, you know, Hungary simply can't afford to do without access to Russian energy, essentially. And there are some, you know, there's similar kind of moves, I mean, with France, you know, so to a certain, you know, Macron has also been trying to carve out a space for articulating a French interest, you know, separate to that of the larger kind of Atlantic alliance. And this has come across occasionally, you know, so if for instance, he said it was it was unclear whether or not it was a slip of the tongue or whether it was calculated. But he said they, you know, France wouldn't use nuclear weapons against Russia unless if if Russia used nuclear weapons in Ukraine, France wouldn't use nuclear weapons against Russia. Only in the case that French national interests, by which it was he was taken to mean French territory, threatened. You know, so he was forced into a position where he was kind of forced to articulate some kind of idea of the French national interest. And he, throughout the conflict, he's tried to kind of be the peace broker. And so, I mean, you know, France's position is slightly different from that of Hungary because France is always in the kind of the, in the eye or in the minds of the French elite, the French kind of national interest kind of segues into European national interest because Mm. they see themselves 
other the leader of Europe. So, you know, there's always a back and forth there. And then in Eastern Europe, you know, there are reports where you see like people are protesting and there have been large protests in the Czech mm-hmm. Republic. There have been large protests in Slovakia, protests in Germany, smaller protests, but protests nonetheless about in Eastern Germany in particular, about the the way in which the war is unfolding. And so there is, you know, there is kind of public discontent, but it's simply not being represented politically. And that mm-hmm. is, I mean, by which I mean, you know, kind of existing political parties with one or two exceptions, the parties that are represented in parliaments in Europe are simply not filtering up the growing kind of scepticism and discontent. And there is, you know, all that said, there is certainly none of it in Britain, mm-hmm. or at mm-hmm. least very little, and nothing like a public kind of, you know, public march to call into question the government's policy on Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, and it's difficult, right? Like, you look at the situation, and it's like, okay, I get that what's been happening in Ukraine has been sort of like the several year fight since around 2015. And then it goes back, obviously, even farther than that. I mean, my family's Croatian, I'm not, you know, unfamiliar with things going back a long time in terms of like tensions and stuff like that. Uh, But I don't know what, I don't know how much the everyday European is supposed to sacrifice. You know, like I think COVID should have been a good lesson for everybody that the economy isn't an on off switch. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and it seemed like nobody really absorbed that lesson. You know, no, it's uh, really, yeah. That's, it, it freaks me out, you know, and I have tons of sympathy. I mean, look, I live in Chicago. Like we still have a neighborhood called Ukrainian Village. Like you can go to grocery stores there where no one speaks English. You know, I have enormous sympathy for a country that is territorially invaded, you know, and, you know, my mom's side of the family still says 26 plus six equals one. And, but I don't, it, it's the, the politics of it. This is all to say, I'm sort of meandering to a point. This is all to say that like the politics seem to be like moralism and sloppiness and hastiness. And there is no real like getting around a table and figuring out what's happening. Like people can't even agree on a price cap. First of all, because it's a stupid idea. And second of all, because it's clear that like, Everybody just reacted to this position, to this situation, rather than trying to figure out what was supposed to be done about it. And I think that that's going to be tragic for Ukrainians as well. Absolutely. I mean, I'd agree with you, you know, and certainly like, uh, you know, I mean, part of the reason I was a supporter of Brexit was because, you know, I believe in the value and principle of independence and sovereignty. And on the same basis, you know, obviously support Ukraine and it's and I'm sympathetic to Ukraine in its attempt to defend its sovereignty and independence from invasion. But that doesn't seem to me to make the case for, you know, gouging our own gouging out our own interest. You know, I mean at very basic level, like you say, I don't think there was reaction without thought. But at the end of the day, I mean, you know, Britain is not at war with Russia. Yeah. You know, Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Hey, and Ukraine the USSR sold gas and oil during the Cold War. Indeed. The yeah. The whole time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's no time yeah. where that wasn't true. Exactly. And it's really, I mean, and, and somehow the circumstances are now worse 
than the Cold War, you know, to that extent. So, you know, it's on, you know, the situation in which people try to justify privation in circumstances in what in which we're not at war is also very strange. Mm. And, you know, that in itself, I think, speaks to, again, a kind of a dystopian kind of mode of politics and a dystopian climate in which there are, you know, the boundaries between, and this is partly an effect of the forever war thinking as well, you know, with the war on terror and what have you, but in which the boundaries between peace and war, you know, become blurred because there's no actual, no ever kind of formal declaration of war. There's no kind of formal participation in conflict. There's no declaration of war, but somehow, you know, war is kind of constant and there's a constant war in the background. And it's in this circumstance, you know, that people are kind of did to undergo privation for the sake of a conflict in which Britain is not actually in a war at all. And -hmm. it's utterly bizarre. You know, I mean, it's bizarre and scrambles all the kind of basic understandings of the exercise of political power, how it's justified and how you would hold it to account. So, I mean, you know, from that point of view, it seems to me kind of senseless. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you want to make the case for war with Russia, which, you know, I think would be insane, you know, but if you want to make the case for war with Russia, (laughs) make the case for war with Russia. Yeah. But this kind of gray zone of like where we're suffering enormously kind of inflated energy bills, we're going to be paying off those energy bills through higher taxes, through government support. Uh, And at the same time, we're trying to economize on energy because to avoid kind of the grid, you know, going into blackout. So we're going through all this privation even though we're not at war, on the grounds of interests that are never really properly articulated, but are cast cast in moralistic terms, like you say. And it doesn't seem to me to serve, you know, the cause of Ukrainian independence if we ourselves are unable to articulate our own independent political interest in this situation. And, you know, this the way in which the war is being fought, again, doesn't seem to me to really make, you know, kind of to make the case that it's being fought in the interests of really defending Ukrainian sovereignty and independence. So in all those circumstances, nothing to me, nothing seems to be served by the damage that is being done to Western Europe for Mm -hmm. the sake of switching our energy dependence from Russia to the U.S., I mean, the other point to make is, right, I mean, the sanctions are not stopping Russia fighting, you know, so the Russian economy doesn't seem to be suffering as much as everybody anticipated, at least not in the short run. And also that, they, you know, the political elite in Russia at least are willing to take the hit because they feel the war is important enough that they're, you know, willing to kind of take the battering that they mm-hmm. expect to receive at some point. So to that extent, also, the sanctions aren't working. Yeah. You know? So they're killing Europeans from cold, but they're not actually stopping Putin's war machine. Right. I mean, that's what's so funny, right? People are just like, well, why can't OPEC plus expand that? I'm like, Russia's a member of OPEC plus and you won't buy from them. Why would they expand production? Like Nigeria, like is just its pipelines are like a sieve, like, you know, people are stealing from them all the time. Like they're the issues are so complicated and beyond this like geopolitical power play from the Saudis that people think is going on. You know, just this consortium does not think it's their responsibility to provide cheap energy to the West, which has its own resources it won't explore or won't cultivate or invest in or whatever. You know, it's sort of shocking to me how everyone thinks that someone else, someone else's country should take care of them. Yes. You know, like that, I'm like, that's amazing. 
<laughs> that is that is an amazing thing to think. Like I'm not even a guy where I think that the the state should be like involved in every aspect of your life and providing every aspect of your life or anything like that. But there seems to be like a, a breakdown of political correspondence between yes. duties and responsibilities, obligations, all of that stuff. You know, like I. It's amazing to me that anybody in America was just like, well, we're just going to talk to MBS and see if they can ramp stuff up in OPEC. I'm like, could you guys go to Houston, Texas? Could you guys like fly there first and see what you can't do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 but no, of course not. You know that's not the way that uh, that these people think anymore. And I, I don't even know what to do about that. And like, maybe this is more of the end of the end of history, where it's unclear what is meant by politics anymore. You know, like discrete definitions don't really seem to serve. I think part of that has to do with like the media saturation of living in a developed country at this point. I think that's like a, a feature, not a bug, or what. But let me let me ask you this. You had a very prolific run of publishing books towards the end of the 2010s. And it seems like on a bunch of different topics, the 1919 book, Lenin Lives, Cosmopolitan Dystopia, and then the book with uh, George and Alex. What are, you, what are you working on and thinking about now? So it is, in fact, precisely on this question of the national interest. Mm. So... You know, what has happened to the idea of a national interest is something I think which is worth thinking about. I mean, as you know, just kind of expanding on what you said about this idea that someone else is going to take care of you. And it seems to me kind of, a mo you know, it's partly trying to deal with this in cosmopolitan dystopia in a particular context. But it seems to me it's worth kind of exploring further that it's kind of an ideological legacy of unipolarity where you don't have the same kinds of um, mm, you don't have mm. the same kind of basic power political competition over resources and interests that you have in earlier periods. And so in that context, like you say, everyone kind of, no one is clear what their, you know, what their interest is, is and everybody expects someone else to take care of them, you know, ultimately and essentially America. And America themselves, you know, because they assume the mantle of being the kind of global hegemon, they mm. themselves kind of don't understand what their own interests are because they think their interests are the same as everybody else's interests. Mm. And then also, like you say, being shocked when, you know, their supposed allies like Saudi Arabia don't simply oblige them when they're kind of expected to. So that's kind of what I'm trying to and trying to understand what happened to the national interest and trying to also be word, you know, so it shouldn't be seen simply as something which is to be disparaged or seen as the kind of monopoly or property of sinister kind of deep state elites but should be seen as something which is about kind of more basic questions of democracy, accountability, and how the exercise of public power is justified and oriented. Mm. And I think part of the problem that it's become a, seen as a dirty word and as a suspect idea is part of the victory of a certain kind of, you know, that's not, that it's part of that moralism, like you say, and that inability to articulate any kind of meaningful view of politics. Mm. So I mean, we're at the moment and hoping to, you know, have something out in the new year or well, towards the end of next year, where I'll take explore some of these ideas a bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's I keep coming back to the sort of like one of Zizek's most basic points that I still find valuable 
where the, the ideological function is that you're never doing something for its own sake. You know, yeah. it's always the science says, or what have you, that's pointing you there. And I think it's, we are in the mind about pure ideology, like moment yes. for, for politics in terms of how we think of things. It's, it's never straightforward and it feels like it can't be. And perhaps that has to do, as you said, with the ideas of self-interest and the nation state and nationalism becoming basically persona non grata yeah. in terms of how we think about this. I hadn't tied it to unipolarity, probably because I am American. And so it's hard to always think in those terms because I'm just, you know, I'm in the imperial core. But uh, I think that that's right. I th and I think you're dead on about the difficulty in Americans articulating their own self-interest, you know, like what, you know, what is this country supposed to be? Uh, yeah. You know, like one of my wife's friends, I always get freaked out when this happens. But one of my wife's friends was like, so I've been listening to your husband's podcast. And I was like, ah, shit. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, here we go. And then she was like, you know, he says he's a nationalist. And, you know, my wife was kind of like, yeah, but, you know, like, what do you think that means? And basically the person thought that it was like, the only variant of nationalism you can have in America is like white nationalism. Yeah. And I was like, that's crazy. <laughs> You know, like, that's wild. That's why it's so funny what happens to, like, Mike Lind, who was on the podcast. Like, I think I even joked with him. I was like, you know, every time you introduce yourself, you're like, I'm a New Deal Democrat. And people are like, you know, <laughs> right-wing nationalist, Michael Lind. Yes, um, that's right, yeah. You know, yeah. and it's like, you can't break it out of that container. And there is sort of like a thornier problem, maybe not even thorny, difficult problem here of, you know, no democracy without a demos. Yes. And what does that mean? Absolutely. You know, and like that there are difficult issues of cosmopolitanism to confront that are worth confronting and thinking through. But it's sort of like why Zizek can't publish at Verso anymore. Yes. And it's because yeah. he was too frank about the actual issues of integration in yes. the migrant crisis, you know, which were very humane, thoughtful questions to ask about what's going to happen without being yeah. like, you know, this horde is coming you know, from the Southern Sea yes. or whatever. Yes. No, absolutely. And I mean, and it's it's funny, like you say, because obviously outside of the imperial core, everyone thinks that the Americans kind of know their interests, right? Oh, because no. they assume exactly, right? So they assume that they're, you know, at the imperial center, there is like someone actually pulling the strings when in fact it works the other way around, at least at least in unipolarity, you know, where because at the imperial core, there is actually no limit and no boundary to that kind of imperial vision by definition, because it's unipolar. And so in that context, like it is actually impossible for the people running the American imperial state to formulate an interest that is kind of, you know, distinctively their own rather than aspiring to be global. And so in the end of it, like you'd have nobody with an interest, you know, the people kind of who are kind of subjects or client states of the of the empire don't have an interest separate from the empire. But the empire doesn't have an interest of its own either, because the empire doesn't confront anyone against which they would articulate an interest. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, it's so and I think, I mean, I mean, that so, you know, that might be changing, I guess, if indeed we're out of a system of unipolarity. But the ideological legacy is deeply entrenched. 
And if the Americans kind of are able to, you know, kind of more, you know, carve out a national interest in terms of bringing back, you know, production of chips onto American soil with the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, with deciding how far they're willing to let the Ukrainians off the leash in their war with Russia, Mm -hmm. all of this kind of stuff, that still leaves us with the task in Europe of articulating our own interests um, Mm -hmm. separately from those of America, but also, you know, separately within Europe itself as independent countries. And like you say, that is, you know, that is necessary if there is to be democracy, you know? So, I mean, just as a very basic thing, the idea of a collective interest, you know, that requires a demos. And so it's deeply intertwined with basic questions of the political accountability. It isn't simply, you know, kind of making a case for hard-headed pragmatism. You know, it's making a case for very basic kind of aspirations of what it means to live or aspire to at least, you know, conditions of self-government and freedom. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, and I think... I mean, shit, I could even settle for like a little bit more hard-headed pragmatism for God's sakes. Yeah, uh, indeed, no, sure. <laughs> you know, the the Brit in Hungary who said that I was like a walking American stereotype, you know, I ended up, you know, getting, getting dinner with the gentleman and he had had plenty of experience doing diplomatic things. And one of the things that he kept saying is that like, you know, at some point we're going to have to treat each other like we have our own interests and do diplomacy. Like that you can't have diplomatic relations without regard for one's own interests and the interests of of another, you know, otherwise, you know, you end up in a coercive situation, you know, where nobody's really responsible at the same time. And that's very weird. That's a very, the long run on that feels not tenable, you know, like I'm not a collapsed hard, but like there are troubling things happening. There are troubling things happening right now. More troubling, I would say than like, anybody's wildest fantasies during 2016. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt, you know, like, again, like, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a club star. And one of my, you know, one of my bugbears is the fact that the people I'm arguing against are always seem to be shilling for the apocalypse, you know, Um, whether it's like, you know, kind of the COVID apocalypse or the leave the EU apocalypse or the, you know, or the kind of the green apocalypse. And so I don't want to, you know, I don't want to kind of, just bring another apocalypse to bear but it is you know it is kind of difficult to understate i think to under just how how bizarrely kind of difficult but also unnecessary the situation is you know there is no necessity to the the idea that the only way to support ukraine is to impose privation on your own citizens is such a bizarre kind of counterintuitive <laughs> proposition like you yeah. say that it would be difficult to imagine it prior to it actually happening you know, yeah. And thus far, people have taken it, you know, kind of still with kind of quiescence. I don't think that will last. No, and it depends, obviously, on whether or not it counts. So we'll see. That's my real fear. Honestly, this is the fear I've had since February of this year is I was like, at some point, it's going to get cold. At some point, there's not going to be enough to go around. And whether that's true this winter or I think the real fear is next winter, yeah. whether it's this winter or next. The decisions that will be made when people are furious, deprived, and scared are going to be way more brutal than decisions they would make today. And you don't want to be in a position where your margin for error is very, very thin while you have no graceful options. 
Yes. You know, that's, I don't know what comes out of that. And I don't think we need to be like collapse stars to say that like you can continue to make unproductive and hurtful decisions when you're put in that position. No, indeed. And the fact that they've allowed themselves again, you know, you think that they would self-interest would have protected them from, you know, allowing themselves to be maneuvered into this position that they're in at the moment, but evidently it hasn't. No, it hasn't. So Phil, I want to thank you for coming back on. This was fantastic. Oh, my pleasure. It's great. Everybody... To, it's great to have been back on and yeah, really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, of course. So everybody check out Phil's pieces, find him on Twitter. I'm sure the listener overlap here is basically like a Venn diagram that is a circle, but <laughs> <laughs> check out BunkerCast. Love it. Look forward to every episode and we will see you next time. Stay safe out there, everybody. Put a fucking curse on your name. And you, I will never let them forget your face. Cause you may not see me now, but motherfucker, I see you.
Just looking for some peace. 